0: Ash begins uh, his chapter in his Trusting God in the Darkness book by making an important contrast between Job and his friends, and it's probably not the one you would expect, because the contrast is their consistency compared with Job's inconsistency, which, if you think about it, is is quite true. They are committed to the system. Every single speech they have, they go back to the system. They are living entirely consistently within their worldview. Their worldview doesn't comport with reality. It's not, it's not consistent with their own experience. But in terms of what they're saying to Job, and that's why they increasingly get frustrated with him, they are very consistent. So they're wrong, but consistently so. And Job, on the other hand, changes. And you see in Job a lot of back and forth and up and down and in and out. And especially the chapters we're going to look at today, 26 and 27, when his when his comforters are done speaking, and now Job is going to reflect. There are some indications in the text that some time passes between these speeches. So there's his immediate response to the friends that we got then there's going to be another response here. Then some time is going to pass in between chapters 26 and 27. And we're going to have more response from Job. And so he's had some, some time to think about these things. His emotional state changes over time, as all of ours does. And you, you see that come out in Job's speeches in a way that is inconsistent. You see pain and anger and hope and despair and longing and this is never going to get better and you, you just see him bounce back and forth between those things and that's what you would expect from somebody who's in the crucible. That, that type of inconsistency when we know the truth of God, we know what's real, it's not just we know how we ought to think. We really do think that way in some moments. We're not just making ourselves say, I trust God because we think that's what we're supposed to do. There will be lots of times where we say and are firmly convinced, I trust God. And then eight minutes or eight hours or eight days later, we say, why is God never there for me when I call out? It's the inconsistency of life in the crucible. And that's what Job has. And Ash says of this, so in the end, The inconsistency, I just realized that was going to do that. The inconsistency of Job is wiser than the consistency of his friends. The inconsistency of Job is wiser than the consistency of his friends. Why? Because it's an inconsistency of integrity and of faith. It is, it is, what is inconsistent within Job is not his worldview with reality. It's his worldview with his feelings, It's what he knows to be true with what it feels like in the moment. And that goes back so much to what we said at the beginning of this class. When we're trying to comfort someone who is in pain, don't get hung up on what the heart of anguish says in terms of theological precision. People have a heart of faith and then they have a heart of anguish. And when the heart or the eyes of faith speak, it ought to be true. It ought to be biblical. It ought to be precise. But a lot of times when people are speaking in their suffering, what they're speaking out of is not the eyes of faith. It's the heart of pain. And we need to be comforting to the heart of pain. We will always speak truth with regards to faith. With regards to the eyes of faith, what is absolutely true. But it's okay. You know, I had a conversation with a a pastor somewhat recently, and I was really confused because it's a guy that I I think well of, and I know he does an amazing job counseling and comforting. But in this conversation, he was saying that um, you you really shouldn't focus or talk about or dwell on feelings when you're dealing with people. You've got to shift their perspective to just think about facts And I thought about everything we're doing here with Job. And frankly, I think his friends would have gotten a lot further in terms of being able to speak truth to Job. Not, not that he needed it, but you follow the analogy. If they had started by caring at all about his feelings, by, by being, uh, being aware, being open to how painful this experience was for Job. And in fact, you could tell that they didn't get it because when they get mad and they start to insult and criticize, they really go for the jugular, don't they? That, they say, well, that's why your kids are dead, Job. So good grief. Who says that? Job's comforters say that. So there's this tension between the eyes of faith and the heart of pain, the heart of anguish. And we live in that tension, and it will produce some inconsistency. But as long as the eyes of faith are present, as long as that ultimate trust in God remains, you're way better off than the consistency of Job's friends with the system because it's just not right. There's no room for grace in their system. And so we're going to deal with some of the inconsistency that's going to come up in these couple of chapters. So we're in chapter 26. If y'all want to turn there. And Kate, will you loudly read one through four? Then Job answered and said, How you have, how you have helped him who has no power, how you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and pentally <clears throat> declared sound knowledge, with whose help have you uttered words, and whose breath has come out for you? If we were going to read that in the tone that Job means it, how would we read that? How you have helped him. Oh, how you've helped him who has no power? Aren't you guys just the best? Wow, thanks, Bill Dad. What a great pep talk that was. Yeah, this is sarcasm. This is angry, painful, biting sarcasm, and he's thanking Bildad for his contribution to the conversation. You ever been in one of those conversations with somebody where a third person comes along and adds something that is utterly unhelpful? And Job is having this conversation with God about his suffering and about what's going on, and Bildad comes and fuses this nonsense, and Job turns and says, I'm so glad you're here. That added such value to the conversation. What a great thing. Thank you for contributing that. So that's, that's how dismissive Job is of Bildad particularly, is those four verses. And then there seems to be in the text a little break, and now Job is going to turn his attention elsewhere in a couple of speeches. He's going to turn back to God because his friends are utterly worthless when it comes to comfort. And so he's going to turn His attention, and this is what I mean by the inconsistency. Job's going to do some really good things, some really wise things, and then Job's going to do some really unwise, unhelpful things. Here's helpful. He's going to turn his attention to where true wisdom can be found. Renee, will you read 5 through 13?
1: The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads it over it, his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent.
0: Uh, Keep going. One more.
1: Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand?
0: Thank you. When I first became reformed, i didn 't grow up in a reformed family or church didn 't grow up in reformed circles. none of these doctrines that are we call the historically reformed doctrines were new were were known to me and then I become reformed in college and then I go to a seminary where it 's literally in the name reformed theological Seminary and then I go pastor uh, reformed churches in the in the historic and Presbyterian tradition and there were people uh, in my life not 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 ill spirited people, but there were people who said, Boy, you reform people, you really become obsessed with one doctrine in particular, with this one thing. It's like, look, we could just disagree on this one thing, but you bring it up all the time. Every theological discussion, it's what you're talking about. Is this one thing, why are you so hung up on it? And the one thing is what Renee just read it's God's sovereignty. Why are we so obsessed with God's sovereignty? Why is it the place we keep going back to? Because it's the answer. Whatever the problem is, (laughs) whatever the problem is, it's the answer. You want to talk about salvation? Well, if I'm dead in my sins and trespasses and no one seeks God, no, not even one, then I need a sovereign God to intervene. If I am weak, even in faith, and need to be strong in holiness and obedience, I need a sovereign God to send the power of his spirit to set forth steps so that I may walk in them. Right? Everything we talk about with the Christian life at some point is going to have to come back to either God is in control or he's not. And when Job here is faced with this dilemma of this Great tragedy and difficulty in his life. And these comforters who are saying, here's the simple solution for it. Here's the easy fix. Quit sinning. Follow God and quit sinning. And Job says, I am following God. There's nothing for me to quit. Well, what's he got left? What, what is there that he can turn to? What is there that he can hope in? What is there that he can rely on? And that's the rest of chapter 26. He turns his attention to where true wisdom can be found, which is in the knowledge of God's sovereignty. He talks there at the beginning about ways that God is sovereign over death and the realm of the dead. It's not possible to be a way to be removed from God's sovereignty. Even hell, Derek Thomas says, is only hell because of the presence of God. Think about that for a minute, because some people say that hell is simply the absence of God. No, 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 no. Hell is only hell because God is there. The absence of God, absence, I had absinthe this weekend, it was delicious. The absence of God is what you would wish for if you're in hell, because it means you could escape the wrath of God. You could escape the judgment of God. It's the presence of God that makes hell, hell. And Job acknowledges this as his sovereignty. There is nowhere you can go. Jonathan Edwards once said, the godly and the ungodly will both spend eternity in the immediate presence of God. God will be the hell of one and the heaven of the other. That's a sovereign God. There's nowhere you can escape. Nowhere you can get away. And for those who trust in him by faith like Job does, that is salvation. That is heaven. And for those who reject him, those who want a world that operates under the rules that they've designed, Job's comforters, that's hell. That is their condemnation. And that's why Job warns them so much against it. Job also talks in this passage about God's sovereignty over creation. He's verse 10. He's inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. God is sovereign over everything in the world. The the frequent quote, there's not one maverick molecule. Every single aspect is obedient to his will. His hand is visible everywhere. Uh, One pastor said, God is sovereign over every imaginable enemy and foe. Now you'd think, believing that, we would live without fear and without anxiety. But therein is the inconsistency, right? The thing we know to be true with the eyes of faith. There are plenty of times where that does not inform our feelings, where it does not direct our steps. That'll be what the sermon's about today. Derek Thomas says, the importance of the doctrine of creation in our everyday lives cannot be overstated. And there's two truths uh, that Job is making broadly within this passage that that relate to the doctrine of creation. The first is that it's a mystery to us. This is what God will get to later when he uh, sets Job in his place a little bit. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? It is all a mystery to you. How I can do what I do and the ways I do what I do and why I do what I do. Unless I, God, have revealed it to you, it remains a mystery. And that is, there's some great stuff from the sermon that I had to leave on the cutting room floor this week because it was getting too long. But one of those was this idea that we think the fact that God's will is a mystery, we we complain that we don't know what to do sometimes because it's a mystery that is hidden from us, that God's will is a mystery that's hidden from us. And what God actually says through Isaiah is, no, the mystery of God is a mystery that is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. That's the revelation of the mystery, God's salvation for us in Christ. God's making us more and more like Christ for the day of his coming, his glorification and making of all things new in Christ. That is the mystery of God that is revealed to us. And so he's given us everything we need for life, for decision making, for knowing what to do next. If we live within that boundary of the mystery that's been revealed, is this or is this not consistent with the word of God? Is this or is this not glorifying to God? Is this moving me toward Christ or away from him? And we want to act like there are hundreds of decisions we make a week that that question alone won't answer. And I, I call nonsense on that. M- many of the decisions that we get all hung up in, there is so much more clarity in God's revelation than we want to admit. And we say, oh, I feel trapped because of this. I have no choice. I have to. That's what Israel's doing. That's what Judah's going to do. When they say they have to go back to Egypt for salvation, Assyria is knocking on the door. What do you want them to do? Their backs against the wall. And it's just absurd that we can see it in them. You're not trapped. Do what God commanded and leave the results to him. But the results might be really bad. Ah, there's the real issue. You don't trust God with the results. It's not that you're trapped. It's not that God's been unclear. It's that you don't trust God with the results. If I do it God's way, it may not work out. That's what we say. And so that creation is a mystery to us is not to say that, we're just walking through in a haze with no idea what to do. It's if there's a way that you've tried to understand something apart from God, you're probably wrong. (laughs) And if there's a way that you're understanding something because God has revealed it, you're absolutely right. I say probably just because of common grace, but you are absolutely right. If you are following what God has revealed. And then the second point of the doctrine of creation in this text is that the world is not self-sustaining. God is upholding the world at all times. Everything in the world is purposefully and actively maintained because God is doing so. It's the image of the Moses arms having to be raised, right? And, And that's a, that's, that's a symbol. It's an important spiritual picture for us. What would happen to the universe If God put his arms down, metaphorically, it would descend into chaos, destruction immediately. It would implode in on itself. It'd be gone. It would cease to exist. God's arms are always outstretched, holding up the world by his power. The New Testament says Christ is doing that work. And so it's not self-sustaining, but God is self-sustaining. And if we realize that what we need in every moment we already have it's the sustaining power of god it's already happening that's why you're still here then we should be able to trust god with the outcomes of what will happen if we do what he said we should do god says this is good for you and we say i don't think it's good for me okay but who is right God is always right. His uh, wisdom is deep. And god he actually says here, there's a a hint at the gospel. There's hints of the gospel all over the place. Um, But the idea that he's at the end of this text, that the way he's going to subdue evil is through the creation. The chaos of the fallen order is the means through which will God will bring up the salvation and the restoration, shaking the pillars, blowing the wind. That's what we experienced, the chaos of a fallen created order. But what else came out of this fallen created order? And unto us a child was born. Human flesh. Here comes from this created order comes the salvation of the world, the one who will put all things right And this is Job's inconsistency because God's wisdom is deep. Job knows God's sovereignty is the place where true wisdom can be found. And yet his sorrow pulls him away from hope and toward despair because of that sorrow. And so Job has to end. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? A paraphrase of that is, yeah, God is great, but he says nothing to me. God is great. He's sovereign. He has all this power. He's working out all these things. But none of it is making my life any better right now. Alright, let's engage with that as comforters for a minute. I think you can imagine someone in your life making a statement akin to that. Yes, I believe in God. God is powerful. God is sovereign. God, yes, yeah. I, God is good. Sure, sure. I went to Sunday school. But God... Is doing nothing for me right now. God is not getting me out of this pain right now. I have begged God to take this away, and it is still here. Where is God? Now, how do we comfort? Where do we start? Acknowledging that feeling. Yeah, i to say, I mean, after we of course destroyed the argument, but we start with that heart of pain and grief, right? Please don't start with the eyes of faith. Please, I mean, I'll try to. An absurd example just popped in my mind. I don't know why, but a, a friend comes with tears in their eyes, and and they're telling you that they 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 were going uh, downtown to do some some Christmas shopping and they got in a terrible car accident, and their child was killed, and you said, why would you go downtown to go shopping? Right? That is the functional equivalent of what we do when we skip the heart of pain because we only want to engage on the level of the eyes of faith. We want to tell people what they ought to believe, that's what Job's friends were doing. Here's what you ought to believe. Job did believe all those things. They were wrong on multiple levels, but one of them was that Job did believe those things. He's just also speaking deeply out of his experience on the heart of pain right now, and we've got to start there. We are very concerned. Those of us especially who are wired for eyes of faith, It is the truth that will set you free. It it is the facts, the the propositions. I just said God's sovereignty is the answer to all of it. I'm not shying away from the importance of that doctrinal truth for actually addressing the problems that cause the heart of pain. There, There are three approaches you could take to this. One of them we're really afraid of, which is that you will only ever address the heart of pain and therefore you'll never get to the eyes of faith. So we feel like we got to get that out on the table right now. I mean, I'll comfort you in a little while. I just want to make sure you actually know that God is still God and that He's good and that all things work. Trust God that you will have time to get there. Or that if God doesn't use you to get there in their life, He will use someone else to get there in their life. Because God may have put you in their life to meet them in the heart of pain. But we're very afraid. I'm not going to get there. The other thing people do is they act as though, and these are people who fall off the other side of the horse, they act as though this is important. When I say eyes of faith, I mean doctrine, truth. They act as though that's important, but not relevant to the situation at hand. So it, it doesn't matter that we ever get to these truths because that's a separate category of your life. Right now, we're just dealing with your pain and your sorrow and your hardship. And we can feel however we want to feel and say whatever we need to say and, because the thing is just feel better. And then when you feel better, you can go back to doctrine and be a good Christian again. And the reality is these doctrinal truths, the eyes of faith, are the only thing that can ever bring real healing to the heart of pain. And so we have to get both of them in there. But if we try to do this without the other, we're offering platitudes. You've all been to that funeral, right? Where people walk up to you and they're trying to be kind and every sentence out of their mouth. If you wanted to diagram ridiculous nonsense platitudes, you could teach a master class. I've been to a lot of funerals, done a lot of funerals. And the things I hear people say in an effort to comfort, you think, Oh, why didn't you just give them a hug? Why, why didn't you just give them a hug? Why not you just have a tear in your eye? Feel something for them. Because what you just said is nonsense. Uh, we don't want to do that. And if you do the other, the, the heart of pain, uh, if you do the other, the eyes of faith without the heart of pain, you're Job's friends, where you say something that is true and utterly irrelevant to the situation at hand. Remember back to the beginning of this class when we said what we're trying to, to do when we're comforters is to get people from the place they are in their experience, sorrow, sadness, despair, hopelessness, pain, and grief. We want to get them to joy in Christ, joy in salvation. We're trying to map out how are they going to get from here to there. And you cannot do this map correctly if you don't act accurately understand where they are, where they're starting. And that's the heart of pain. And that's what Job's friends uh, work very hard to skip. Questions about chapter 26? We'll do 27. I just wondering what Abaddon is. is A place. It's the... Uh, It's, uh, it's the place that, I think, I'm going to get this wrong. No, I think it's the, I think it's the, um, trash heap burning pile. Uh bottomless place where things are destroyed, it's the, um, I think, and I could be wrong, I could be mixing this up with something else. I think it was the name of the place outside the village where you took the trash to be burned and destroyed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that ties in to Isaiah 30 today because it talks about the king of Assyria who thinks so mightily of himself, his funeral pile, pyre will be on that trash heap, the burning, smoldering trash. So it's language that's commonly used for a a, bottom, a place of destruction and a void. The part I'm iffy on is whether or not it's the trash heap or just that word in more general. Do you know, Jake? the Gehenna is the Greek word for that. I don't know if that's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, a real Hebrew scholar would know. <laughs> what about Rahab? Uh, By understanding, shattered Rahab. The, the beast, the dragon, oh, okay. the, the destroyer. Yeah, that's, into, that's so funny, because that's why my brain is a little mixed up right now, because both of those are in Isaiah chapter 30. And so I'm thinking, am I just conflating that with this? But no, they're both in chapter 30. Uh, he'll call Rahab the dragon, the do-nothing in Isaiah 30. All right, 20, chapter 27. This is 27 and 28 are kind of Job's closing discourse. There's some there's lively scholarly debate about the timing of these chapters. Some people think that it's Job speaking all at once at one time, giving a summary to what he just heard liberal scholars of course because there's any complexity in this text whatsoever say no this isn't even Job speaking because it's just out of place and inconsistent and it's weird what seems most likely based on what I've read are these gaps of time that I've mentioned where you have to imagine some amount of days weeks months maybe even years in between some of these speeches that are now being compressed together for the sake of Uh, Producing the book, the volume that is Job. Job will defend his case. Job will defend God's justice looking the way that God reveals it, not the way that his friends reveal it. But Job is going to, this path Job is already on will accelerate at a more rapid pace, which is Job not understanding how God's justice operates in the world. And Job goes from being defensive in a good way about God's justice, despite the way you can't seem to put it together. Job acknowledges God's justice in the world to Job, ending the way he just ended there in chapter 26 of, yeah, these things are true, but it's not doing anything for me right now. It doesn't seem to have any cash value right now to Job's going to get more and more bothered and troubled by the fact that he can't reconcile with his own eyes what God says is true about his justice with what Job's experiencing and his interpretation of that. Uh, Christopher Ash in the, I'm sorry, it's Derek Thomas. Derek Thomas in his commentary on Job makes a really interesting point starting in chapter 27, since now his friends are, are done and basically out of the picture. If you reflect back on all the speeches of his friends, Thomas says, one of the strangest things about all that Job's friends have said is that not once have they ever spoken to God directly. Think about Job's speeches. He prays to God. He complains to God. He fights with God. That interaction, that wrestling with God is part of Job's engagement with the issue, part of the healing process, part of how he's going to fight for hope. And Thomas says, how did Job appear so calm and patient in his ordeal? The answer lies in his prayer life. Now, think about it. All that means is, Communication with God, talking with God. What's the difference between Job's friends and Job's? Job's friends who become increasingly angry, who become increasingly insufferable and intolerant and and, and persecutorial and, and my way or the highway. They dig in more and more and more. And Job has this wrestling. And it's interesting that one side of that never talks to God and one side of that talks to God throughout. It doesn't free him from pain, but it does provide the wrestling of faith, which gives him a much calmer and more patient perspective throughout this suffering. There's the example of uh, Jacob, right? You think Jacob wrestles and struggles with God and it leaves him permanently lame, but it changed him spiritually forever. And, the challenging question for us is if you had to pick, which would you pick? If the options are wrestle painfully, brutally with God in a way that may leave you physically worse off. Money, relationships, emotions may leave you physically worse off. But if the gain of that wrestling with spiritual change that makes you more like Christ, more devoted to Christ, walking with Christ, do you think that is worth it? And a lot of us do in theory. And then you get to it, and the heart of pain says, nah, I don't want this trait. If you're wrestling with the one person that can do something about it, I
1: mean, you're wrestling Mm with
0: Yeah, you're not, it's not, it's not a, it's not a, a purposeless fight with a third party, right? It's not suffering for suffering's sake. It's suffering at the hand of the one who is all sovereign. And therefore, not just can, but promises to use that wrestling, that suffering, to glorify himself and to make you more ready for the day of his coming. It to me that um, one of the practical ways what you just said of getting the eyes of faith inserted in the heart of pain is to pray with that person on their behalf. You spend your time pleading with God for them. Not giving a theologically... Yeah, don't give right. a sermon and a yeah, prayer. But just pouring out your heart for them to God. What a great way to get that. Reminding them who God is and that He is uh, without ever having to say it. But going before God on their behalf. Well,
1: that's a great idea because it reminds me of when we're at Cheryl's uh, memorial service, non-believers, right? And Jake prayed and... My niece, who has never been raised in church or anything, came to me later and said, something in me really moved when
0: Jake was praying, right? People are not, when they're in the heart of pain, they are not comforted by the Christian who has all the answers for their pain. That will be really valuable later because you don't want, that's the problem with empathy, Empathy all by itself is I can be with you in the heart of pain. Yeah, but I got no answers. We're never getting out of this thing. It just is how it is. Then why did you get in this hole with me, you moron? Now there's two of us in the hole. Right? This, it, no, I don't want empathy. I want wise sympathy. I want someone down in the hole with me in the heart of pain, calling out to God for relief. And who, when I turn to them and say, what would you do? Says, let's see what God tells us. That's what you're looking for in a comforter. People will often ask me, uh, just not (laughs) as you all know me well, not because of my godliness, but because of my training and experience. I'm with a lot of people in a lot of really, really difficult moments. I'm in hospitals at deathbeds, and and the question that people will often ask after the fact is, "Wow, what in the world did you say?" And the answer is always, "I prayed for God's mercy." That's what people want from me. They don't want me to give them answers about how this will all work out in the end. They don't want me to tell them to stop feeling how they feel. They want me to understand this pain is really, really deep. And Paul Mulner, the human, can do not a thing for it. So what do I do when I can't do a thing for anything? Which is all the time. I pray to the one who can actually do something about it. And what I pray for in the moment, the depth of that pain is mercy. Oh, God, be merciful. Don't treat us as we deserve. Be merciful. That's what you pray. That is how people know you've grasped the heart of their pain. And then, you will have the opportunity or if God was using you to tell the soil and somebody else to plant the seed, they will have the opportunity to explain the eyes of faith, to point people back to Scripture. And that is really, really critical. God may this is Derek Thomas. God may ask us to pass through similar valleys to Job, holding on to God even when His ways sorry, let me change my tonality. God may ask us to pass through similar valleys to Job. Holding on to God, even when his ways appear to make no sense, is the secret of Job's life. Job may well have problems with seeing God's justice in his life, but everything in him says he must hold on, even when it makes no sense. We all have passages in the Bible and particularly in the Gospels that that jump out to us personally, that connect with us on a on a deep level because of how we're wired and what we're thinking. And, you know, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament is Jesus turning and saying, are you going to leave, too? And they say (laughs) they don't say, no, this is great. (laughs) They don't say this is the best teaching I've ever heard. What do they say? Where else would we go? You have the words of life. I don't like this. is <laughs> the, the inference of that. I don't like what you're doing, God. But where else would I go? You're the only one who has the authority to do it. And you're the only one who can be trusted that it, which looks insane to me, is good. Will be good. Is for my good. This is... Uh, Ultimately, the real appeal to God's justice. Our comfort and hope and joy that God is just should not be grounded in the fact that God satisfies our definition of justice, because rarely He does, because we made ours up and it's very self serving. What we want God to be in His justice is true to Himself, and He is good. He is after his own glory, as he ought to be. And so all the things that he does will be things that are God-glorifying, which are by definition good. And so when we appeal to God's justice, at the core of that is God being true to himself. And that's the best news we could ever have if we align ourselves with God. If we align ourselves with ourselves, God being true to himself is the worst news we could ever have. God's interest is in advancing His glory and His kingdom. It is not in making us. Uh, what does Steve May say on the Lead with Character trip? Fat, happy, and lazy. <laughs> That's not God's plan for it. That's my plan for me. You can probably tell. <laughs> I like my plans, but God's plan for me is not. God's plan is His glory being maximized by everything that he's made. And so in as much as I desire to bring glory to God, my will and his align. And that's good. That's why the New Testament says things like you can pray for whatever you want and you're going to get it. In what context? When your aim is to glorify God in the way that God's aim is to glorify God, you better believe you're going to get what you want when you ask for it. But what about when my aim and God's are in conflict? What's going to happen? Well, what God should do is destroy you in his wrath immediately. What God does do, thankfully, is have a great deal of patience. And those stories in the Bible are there for our benefit when God does not exercise his patience. God's under no obligation to exercise his patience. Nadab and Abihu, right? You bring some strange fire, what happens? Burnt up. Or even the more sympathetic one, the guy who reaches down to prevent the Ark of the Covenant from falling when it gets dropped. Mm -hmm. But what did God say? Mm -hmm. Don't touch it. (laughs) Well, yeah, but God, it was going to fall. So what'd you do? Touched it. Poof. Mm -hmm. (laughs) right. That's not how God normally operates. God normally operates with a great deal of patience. Those stories are in there to remind us that he is under no obligation to do so. 1 Corinthians, this is why many of you are sick and some of you have died. What were they doing wrong? Uh, taking the Lord's Supper in a selfish way. Wait, wait What? Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, they brought their own food. They wouldn't share it with other people. They thought those other people in the church were a bunch of losers. They were here for gluttony and drinking and just sort of doing their own thing and, uh, weren't submitting to God. Uh, I call that October.
1: <laughs>
0: and he did what? Oh, hey, burned them up. Uh, God doesn't under no obligation to be patient and yet, he is patient. He's overwhelmingly patient. It's a kind of sympathy with that that heart of pain. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness. And so even as he calls us out of it, he's often patient with us as we tarry, as we delay in following him. But he will advance his kingdom. And when you set yourself at odds with the advancement of his kingdom, you think, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not that important. My life isn't that important. I'm just living the way I want to live. What is the advancement of his kingdom? That everything he made brings the maximum amount of glory to him. That is the advancement of his kingdom. Well, yeah, yeah, everybody else can do that, but I'm just going to kind of do what I want to do. Yeah, bad news. You've set yourself up in opposition to the advancement of the kingdom of God, and you should expect judgments We pray those judgments would be designed to lead you to repentance. The worst thing that can happen is, I'll quote in the sermon today, talking about Judah, they were really scared about Assyria knocking down their gates. What should they have been scared of? Romans 1. That they were so committed to their own way of thinking that God just turned them over and darkened their sight so they could not see forever. That's what we just read two chapters ago, right? That's what they should have been scared of, and that's what we should be scared of. We should not be scared of, is this going to work out? Of course it's going to work out. It's going to work out for the advancement of the kingdom of God. No, but I mean, is this going to work out to get me what I want? Ah, now we've got the real problem. Now we've got the heart of the problem. So Job is going to be done with his friends, Um, he is confident in God's justice, but he can't see at all how it's working in this world. He's confident that wisdom is found in God's sovereignty, but he's really struggling to see how that applies to his life and how that makes any sense in his circumstances. And he is certain that his friends are wrong, <laughs> that that his Suffering is not God's judgment on his behavior, but that actually God is the one doing the thing that doesn't make sense. God is the one doing the thing that is out of line, that is inconsistent. And that's where you're going to start to see Job break down a little bit. (laughs) This is going to be the, the descent of Job into a little bit, not, not. I don't think it's sinful, hard-hearted, God-denying rebellion. I think it's Job descending down into believing his own press a little bit too much. And God's going to have to reorient him in the end. And Job will demonstrate the heart of faith by responding to that correction. I mean, that's that's as important a sign as anything else. It's not just, do you never need correction? Because this is a great lesson for y'all to think about. Christianity is not... Do I never need correction? You know your parents. You know your parents' friends. <laughs> we need correction. <laughs> Christianity is not do I never need correction. Christianity is how do I respond to correction? Christianity is do I acknowledge that God was right to correct me, to bring this correction into my life? Will I apologize, repent, and reorient myself back toward what's true? Or will I dig in and double down my way or the highway, which is the sermon. So that's a great transition. Questions, feedback about 26 and 27 here in Job. Great. We're done. Thanks.